How about a history lesson? It was on June 28th. 1776, June 28, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, which was the document that, uh, in which the 13 American colonies formally stated their independence from Great Britain and set forth the ideas upon which the U.S. government would be based. That day, June 28, 1776, it was presented to the Continental Congress. Let's go ahead and move forward on, there we go, one more. Thank you. There we go. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't have June 28th up there. No wonder you didn't. I said it three times. Matt was listening for the cue that I didn't put the slide up for that cue. Sorry about that, Matt. So what's up there now is July 1st. July 1st, 1776, the Second Continental Congress met in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And the next day, July 2nd, 1776, 12 of the 13 colonies voted in favor of Richard Henry Lee's motion for independence from Great Britain. Then for the next two days, on July 2nd and 3rd, the delegates debated and revised the language of the statement that was drafted by Thomas Jefferson. Here is a picture of uh, the uh, one of the original drafts written by Thomas Jefferson in his... Uh, Handwriting and all the scratching out and revising and working, trying to uh, trying to come up with uh, the language that they wanted. That was occupied two days, and then on July fourth, seventeen seventy six, Congress officially adopted the Declaration of Independence. And here's how it begins: In Congress, July fourth, seventeen seventy six. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among, them, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of the ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer where evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they were accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces 
a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. And such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has, and the Declaration of Independence continues to list the infractions that they believe had been committed by the King of Great Britain that had become weighty enough to warrant the peoples of the various colonies, the states, to be able to throw off that form of bondage and to establish a new government. And so on July 4th, 1776, John Adams, after they had voted to accept the Declaration of Independence that they had uh, come up with, John Adams wrote to his wife Abigail right after the July 4th acceptance of the Declaration of Independence. He wrote to her and said, This ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forth forevermore. And boy, they were lighting up the sky last night, weren't they? He went on to say to his wife, you will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom I can see, the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is more than worth all the means, and that posterity will triumph in that day's transaction, even although we should rue it, which I trust in God we shall not. The signers of the Declaration, many of them wealthy men, knew they were signing away their family fortunes, their lands, their properties, and perhaps even their lives if things did not go well in the ensuing struggle with Great Britain as they threw the tyranny of Great Britain off their backs and forged ahead with this new government. That was done, and uh, John Adams wrote that to his wife on July 4th, 1776. But it wasn't until August that the Declaration of Independence was finally signed. It had to be printed uh, and uh, on August 2nd, 1776, uh, the signing of the United States Declaration of Independence occurred uh, primarily, the initial signatures on that date, August 2nd, in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 
The 56 delegates to the Second Continental Congress represented the 13 former colonies which had declared themselves the United States of America, and they endorsed the Declaration of Independence, which Congress had approved on July 4, 1776. The Declaration proclaimed that the former 13 colonies, then at war with Great Britain, were now a sovereign, independent nation, and thus no longer a part of the British Empire. So began the struggle to establish the new government, and it was 11 years later, September 17, 1787, that the Constitution of the United States was then signed. And so, 1787, again in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 39 delegates to the Constitutional Convention representing 12 states endorsed the Constitution created during the four-month-long convention called for the purpose of establishing a Constitution. It's interesting that one state refused to send delegates to that Constitutional Convention. That one state was Rhode Island. Now, I, I wish I would have had time to go back and research that a little further to find out why Rhode Island refused to send delegates to the Constitutional Convention and be a part of establishing the Constitution of the United States of America. The reason that's interesting to me is because Rhode Island was the first place in the world where a governmental body established the freedom of religion. And that governmental body established that because of the long, hard work of John Clark, whose name appears over the doors to the uh, room at the back of the auditorium on this side, you can see a picture of the historic uh, signing of that governmental document in, in, uh, in England where the government uh, gave to Rhode Island a charter to establish religious liberty. That was a Baptist document written by a Baptist. It was the first place on earth where a governmental body gave religious liberty. You could worship God according to the dictates of your conscience, regardless who you think that God is or what you think that God is. No one can tell you who you have to worship. Rhode Island then would not send delegates. I wonder. This will be an assignment for you young, studious people that like to study history. What was the reason? Could it have been that the Constitution of the United States was not going to grant religious liberty? As a matter of fact, it was because of the hard work of the Baptists in Virginia who lobbied James Madison and only would support the Constitutional Convention if Madison promised that the first order of business under a new Constitution will be to establish a Bill of Rights which will grant religious liberty to anybody in the United States of America. You can go to Torch 516 room upstairs. You can see a picture of, uh, that commemorates that and read the plaque that commemorates that great event in history of the United States and here in Virginia. And uh, so when the Constitution was decided and signed, there was no guarantee we were going to have religious liberty. Rhode Island would have been going backwards. I wonder if that had anything to do with the refusal. I'd like to find that out. And so, 1787, the, um, the Constitution was signed, and on June 26th, 
the state of Virginia ratified the Constitution of the United States in two stages, two steps. Step number one was a declaration of ratification that Virginia would support the United States Constitution. And step number two was a recommendation that a Bill of Rights be added to the Constitution. And they gave a list of suggested amendments. And, of course, Madison had promised them, he gave them his word of honor, that he would push for that as soon as the Constitution was ratified by the United States. Well, all of that happened back at the end of the 1700s. We just celebrated yesterday the birthday. What was it, 200 and how many, 44? Is it the 244th anniversary of our country uh, this year? Let us stand together as we sing our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner.
Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter number 2. What in the world does the 4th of July have to do with church? What does liberty and freedom have to do with God and with, with our lives, our, our life as a church family? You know, there's a, there's a lot more to the 4th of July than fireworks and patriotic music. There's a lot more to the 4th of July than parties and picnics and barbecues, although we love all of that. And uh, we've got some stuff going on the grill in just a little bit. There's something more to it than that. Something deeper. And it is wrapped up in that song that the ladies just played. If only my people... Here in 1 Timothy, God gives to us an amazing portion of his word. It's directed towards teaching a church how to act. While you hold your finger there at that location, you may turn one page over perhaps to chapter 3, the end of the chapter, verse number 14. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 14. These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Which is the church of the living God. The pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Well, I'd like to come and see you face to face. I'd like to be able to sit down with you. When you gather together as a church family, I'd like to be able to sit down with you and, uh, and to talk to you about how to behave. But if I tarry long, if it's going to be a while before I get there, I'm writing this letter. Because I want to tell you how to behave in church. That's pretty practical, isn't it? That's what First Timothy's all about. How to behave in church. That's, that's, good, that's good teaching, parental work. Teaching their kids how to behave in church. You don't go out during the preaching, preachers. The per- preachers preaching. Peter Piper picked a peck. You don't leave the auditorium when the preacher's preaching. If you can sit through a ball game for three hours, you can sit through a two-hour sermon. I remember one old church. They had a little old grandma. They called her the bathroom lady. She went around before church. When she saw it was about five minutes till church started, she'd go around telling all the kids, go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. No one needs to leave church during preaching. Amen? A couple of us will stay here. How to behave in church. And so this book was written about how to behave when we gather together in church. And first of all, more important than not going to the bathroom during preaching. First of all, more important than Sunday school class. First of all, more important than the special music in the choir. 
first of all. And the word of God begins to tell us how to behave in church. And it has to do with the 4th of July. What is it that we are to understand as God's focus on freedom and liberty? We find it here in this passage of scripture. There are four parts to God's answer. Let me give them to you before we go eat. Here's the first part. The first part of God's answer is that our greatest answer... Our greatest action, rather, as a church, our greatest action as a church is our prayer life. The greatest action that the members of Community Baptist Church perform, the greatest action that the congregated church performs, is our prayer life as a church family. We have this greatest action given to us in verse number one and verse number two. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all that are in authority. You know, Community Baptist Church's prayer life could be defined as the sum total of the prayer lives of each of its members. Private prayer lives. Added to... All of the prayer groups that meet during the week as members of the church meet together in prayer groups. The prayer life of Community Baptist Church is the sum total of the private prayer lives of each of its members added to the corporate prayer life of each group of members who meet together and pray. And God says, the most important action that Community Baptist Church does every week is to pray. If my people, oh, if only my people, the ladies played a moment ago. You see, prayer life is a high priority to God. Prayer life is the first order of business. Prayer is both spontaneous and deliberate. It arises from the spontaneous conversation of family members. Me and my dad who lives in heaven. And it is also deliberate because it's coupled with the deliberate focus on developing a life of prayer according to the instruction of the word of God. As the disciples asked Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Teach us, Lord. Teach us about prayer. What do we pray about? What do we do when we pray? Lord, would you teach us? And so the Bible has teaching within it to teach us how to pray. And so prayer is spontaneous because it's a relationship between family members that just talk. But it's also deliberate. Because it learns and grows and develops how to pray as we study the word of God and put it into practice. And and perhaps that's why we have in verse number one 
some different expressions. He says, first of all, supplications. What are supplications? Well, that's to supplicate or to, to ask about needs that need to be met. It's to appeal for personal needs to be addressed. Uh, supplications and prayers, a, a word that speaks of one addressing God, uh, coming to God and talking to God. Supplications, prayers, intercessions. When we pray as a child intercedes with their dad about something that's on their hearts, even as we intercede one for another and pray for one another. And giving of thanks, because prayer always acknowledges an appreciation for what God has already done. doesn't merely just ask God for more stuff. There's a lot of things about prayer. And, and it's... It's sometimes just spontaneous, and sometimes it's deliberate. And you put it all together. It is the greatest action that a church can take. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, If any of you should ask me for an epitome of the Christian religion, I would say that it is one word, prayer. He also said, Oh, without prayer, what are the church's agencies but the stretching out of a dead man's arm or the lifting up the lid of a blind man's eye. Only when the Holy Spirit comes is there any life and force and power. And that comes with prayer. Spurgeon was the greatest preacher of his lifetime, the best known preacher of his lifetime. His sermons are still read. Someone was telling me just this last week, that they've been reading and just being blessed by reading some of Spurgeon's sermons. Spurgeon said, I usually feel more dissatisfied with my prayers than with anything else I do. Can you relate to that? Of everything I do in my Christian life, of everything I do as a Christian, the thing that I'm most dissatisfied with is the intensity and depth of my prayer life. That was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He also said the Christian should work as if all depended on him and pray as if it all depended on God. He said the condition of the church may be accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. Wow. The condition of Community Baptist Church is very accurately gauged by our prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. If he be not, if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. Prayer is the breath, the breath of faith. Prayer meetings are the lungs of the church. The greatest action. I'm writing you this letter to tell you how to behave in church. First of all, your prayer life as a church family. Contrast that with CNN's Chris Cuomo, who said Friday night that if you believe in one another and if you do the right thing for yourself and for your community, things will get better in this country. You don't need help from above. It's within us. It's within us. You don't need help from above. We've already got within us what we need to make America a better country. We don't need help from above. So Chris Cuomo said, really? 
You really believe that we don't need God? You really believe that we have within us as Americans what it takes to make America a better country? Could I ask you to listen to Jesus Christ in Matthew 15? Jesus said, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies, looting, breaking into stores and stealing the possessions, pulling the trigger and murdering police officers. Really? America could be greater if we would all just do what's within us. How has it been working out on the news the last four, five weeks? As America lives out its heart on the streets of our big cities. No, Chris Cuomo, you are dead wrong. Jesus Christ is right. It is out of the heart of man that comes murders and thefts and looting and stealing and destruction. And when America lives out its heart, we get what we've witnessed on TV the last four weeks. We do need help from above. And that's why the greatest action is the prayer life of the church. If, oh, if, just if my people, if only my people would humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You see, the greatest action that we could ever do is to pray privately. Corporately, in prayer meetings, and that is the first order of business. What will it produce? What good is it to pray? Let's look at the second part. The greatest result of prayer is a quiet and peaceable life. Look at it in verse number two. He says, pray, pray for all men, pray for the kings and for all that are in authority. Pray for the president and the vice president. Pray for the Supreme Court and the congressmen. Pray for the senators and the members of the House of Representatives. Pray for the the mayors and the governors and the police officers. Pray for all that are in authority. Why? What is the result to be expected from the prayer life of God's churches? Verse 2 says, That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. In all godliness and honesty. That's the greatest result. The greatest result of a people praying and seeking God. Praying for everybody, especially for kings and all that are in authority, is that we may live a life that's quiet and peaceable. This is the great result. A quiet life. A quiet life. That, that, that's a, an interesting word. It, it speaks of a quiet that arises from the absence of outward disturbances. <laughs> that's interesting, isn't it? Especially after watching all the looting and all the, the protests that went violent and all the breaking into stores and destroying people's property and tearing down statues and all the destruction and rioting and looting and... The greatest result is a tranquility that arises from the absence 
of outward disturbance. The greatest result. Peaceable. And the word peaceable, he puts these two words together, a quiet and peaceable life, because peaceable speaks of the tranquility that arises within from your own spirit that is in tune with God because of your prayer life. And so notice here, we've got a quiet and peaceable life, quiet from outside, quiet from inside. This is the result of such a life of prayer of God's people. This life will result in verse number 2 ending with, in all godliness and honesty. This is the, this is the greatest result of our prayer lives. In America, it seems that we may be losing this type of living as Christian people. Continually, laws are being passed that tell us that we cannot practice our faith outside of the walls of our church facility. Laws are passed about issues of morality that the Bible is definitive on, making illegal what God says is mandatory. Causing some to fear that if God does not send revival, there will come a day in America where people who live a Christian life will face judicial results, opposition. America may be losing this kind of living in peace and tranquility of godly people, godliness and honesty. The remedy, our greatest action, is our prayer lives. Oh, if my people would humble themselves and pray. There's a third part to God's answer. The third part is the greatest purpose. The greatest purpose. What's the greatest purpose of a quiet and peaceful life? So that I can enjoy tranquility, peace, and quiet? No, 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 no. It's not about you. The greatest purpose in verse number 3 is, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. The greatest purpose is the salvation of people all over the world. God wants us to have peace, freedom, liberty in America so that we can be the engine that fuels the missionary endeavor to send missionaries and reach people and knock on doors and give out tracts and talk to people about Jesus Christ. You see, the greatest purpose of the 4th of July is the salvation of souls. God is interested in liberty and freedom. God is interested in peace and quiet. And so he tells us we need to be praying for our leaders so that we will have peace and quiet. And the reason, the reason, the purpose of why God wants that is because God wants people to get saved all over the world. This is the great purpose. World evangelism. God's desire it's God's will, His desire, His emotion, His passion. It is God's will. He will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants people to hear the truth. He wants people free to get out tracks, free to witness, free to talk about their faith. He wants good, 
godly, peaceable, quiet living in our country, freedom and liberty, because he wants people to get saved. He wants people to hear the truth freely and openly. This is the greatest purpose, the purpose of world evangelism. Well, how? How is this great purpose going to be carried out? That brings us to our final part of God's answer. The fourth part of God's answer is the greatest means of accomplishing that. The, the, the greatest action is our prayer lives. The, the greatest result is freedom. The greatest purpose is evangelism. And the greatest means involves both God and you. Look at verse number five. Verse number five, God, the God who will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. This is the God part of the, the uh, means of salvation. People need to know there is only one God. He's the creator God. He's the only God. Everyone else is an imposter. Everyone else is a man-made imposter that does not exist. There is one God. That one God is the creator. His name is Jehovah. There is one God. And one God created one mediator between man and God. There's only one way to get to heaven. If you don't go to heaven by, the, by me, if you don't go to the Father by me, you don't get there, Jesus said. There's only one means to get to the Father. Jesus said, it's by me. There's one mediator between God and man. There's not many roads that all lead to the same place. There's one road that leads to God. And that one road is Jesus Christ. One God, one mediator. And the reason that one mediator is the sole solitary mediator, because he is the one that gave his life a ransom. For all. While every other religion teaches that if you'll worship their God and be good enough and try hard enough and work long enough, that you can attain a level that will earn you a right to go into heaven. And builds man's confidence, his pride, his self-sufficiency. I can do this. It's only Jesus Christ, who says, without me, you'll perish in hell forever. And it's interesting to me that the majority of what we know about the place Jesus Christ called hell are printed in red letters in your Bible, if you have a red letter edition. Outside of the words of Jesus Christ himself, we don't know much about hell. The one who knows the most about hell is the one who talked the most about hell. Because he knew the most about hell. And he knew that there's never been a person walk the face of the earth, save Jesus himself, who could ever earn a place into the presence of God. And so he came to us. Because we couldn't make it to him. So he came to us and gave himself a ransom for all. 
He went to the cross of Calvary. And he took Mike Elstock's lying. Mike Elstock's using God's name in vain. Mike Elstock's stealing. Mike Elstock's impure thoughts. Every sin that Mike Elstock ever would, did, or will commit. Jesus Christ took all of my filth upon his pure and spotless soul. And he who knew no sin became sin. He became the sin of Mike Elstock. Everything I've done wrong to God, Jesus became that. And then paid the penalty that I would have had to pay for all of eternity. He paid it for me. And the precious blood that he shed on Calvary's tree was the ransom price. It was the redemptive price. It was the money on the price tag of my soul. And Jesus paid his own lifeblood to ransom me, to redeem me, to purchase me from the slave market of my sin and the eternal destruction that I was heading for. Jesus and only Jesus gave himself. As a ransom for all. How is it that this great purpose of salvation can be attained? Well, it's through the means of God becoming flesh and dying for us. But that's not the end of it. Did you notice the end of verse number six? To be testified. See, it's not just enough that God did what he did. You got to do. What he told you to do. We have to testify. Paul owned that in the next verse. He said, I am ordained a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I have gone all over the known world. Pretty near. I mean, he went all over the place. What was he doing? He was doing what God created him to do. He was testifying as a preacher, apostle, teacher. He was spreading the news that Jesus Christ died for you and you can be saved. Now, God equipped Paul to do that. He may not have equipped you to be a preacher or a teacher, but he did equip you to use what he equipped you with to reach the unsaved with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the means... Of God's purpose in America's freedom required God to die and you to testify. And God has done his part. And now it's up to you and me to do our part. God's focus on freedom is world evangelism. That's why America exists. That's why we have liberty and freedom. That's why for 244 years we've enjoyed peace and tranquility for most of that time. That's the, the purpose that God has in giving us freedom. And the means of carrying it out is our effort to get the gospel out. Oh, what an amazing thing this thing of liberty and freedom is all about. And I would say, God bless America. And liberty for all, so that we can be involved in evangelizing the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's 
the heartbeat of God. But here's the here's the million dollar question before we go eat. The million dollar question is, are you saved? Are you saved? Everyone in this room today is free. We live in America. We just celebrated liberty and freedom for all. We've learned from God's word today that there's a purpose for that. And it's for the salvation of souls. And everyone in this room this morning is either saved or lost. Either on the way to heaven or on the way to hell. Are you saved? You are enjoying the freedom and liberty of America for the purpose of being able to sit in this room this morning and hear a preacher open the Bible and declare that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. But you've got to do something with that. And if you've never been saved, I want you to know God loves you so much. At the end of 244 years of America's history, and every year of it has been for the purpose of salvation of souls, here and around the world, I ask you, have you ever been saved? And if down deep in your heart this morning, you sense the Spirit of God saying to you, what He's saying is true. And you're not saved. And you need to be saved. The Bible calls that the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Working to convict you on the inside of what you've heard me say on the outside. And I appeal to you, listen to the Holy Spirit. And if He's speaking to your heart today, and you need to be saved, I can't think of a better day for you to come to Jesus Christ and believe that He died on the cross for you and reach out to Him. He said, Come now. Reason with me. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. He said, Anyone who calls out to me for salvation shall be saved. Thank you for joining us for part of a Sunday service at Community Baptist Church. I hope to meet you soon. May God impress His love upon your heart this week.